Well, it was a surprise to me this morning. I hope it's not a surprise to you. Uh, Family Worship Sunday this week, uh, which means the kids are staying in with us. Um, We give our children's ministry teachers a little break, and and we get to say, hey, kids, church is for you. Um, We want you here. We want you joining with us. And I know that takes some extra work, and that uh, expects a lot out of you guys. And usually I have that nice little kids fill in, but... I was not paying attention this week, so I'm sorry I don't have it. Um, I did last minute bring my chocolate bars, uh, so I do have candy for the kids after service. Um, But here's what you need to do. Instead of filling the fill-in, if you're older, if you're able to, um, take some notes. Write down the title, maybe the verse, maybe some of the main points that are up there. If you can show me that you were paying attention, um, I'll get you a chocolate bar. If you're younger, if taking notes is a little bit of a stretch, um, draw me a picture. But same rules before can't be a picture of me, right? You got to draw a picture of something from the sermon. And uh, um, so, and you guys need to remind me after service, you come find me. Um, I will need to split outside and uh, meet me out there. So um, hopefully you guys are able to, uh, to keep up and, and to join in. Um, and, uh, and this morning, I want to start with a story from when I was a kid. Um, 1996, I was 13 years old. Uh, I was at Bellevue Bible Camp, south of St. Paul, Alberta, and uh, it was a rough day. We had been out canoeing for our afternoon activity, and uh, my friend David and I had gone out further than we were supposed to, and as our allotted time for canoeing came to an end, um, the wind picked up and was blowing offshore toward us, and the waves started coming, and so everyone else made their way in and, and, and away from the beach and put their canoes away. The one left on the beach was our canoe instructor who was impatiently waiting as we paddled and fought against the wind, and, and as we worked our way closer, um, we heard what we thought we might hear, that we hoped we wouldn't hear, carried on the wind was the dinner bell from the lodge. We were late. We finally made it to shore, got our canoe put away, and made it up the big hill and, and across the playing field. And as we rounded the corner to the front of the lodge, our worst fears were realized. Our cabin, because of our lateness, uh, had bumped to the back of the supper line. And worse yet, it was roast beef night. And so we stood ashamed at the back of our cabin, at the back of the line, watching our chances for seconds getting carved away one slice at a time. And my friend David, he was a pastor's kid, and just wise beyond his years, he leaned over to me and put his hand on my shoulder, and he said, the first will be last, and the last will be first. (sighs) Now, I'd love to just have an altar call and a closing song right, right there. But the question needs to be asked, is, is that what Jesus meant? Is that what he's talking about? Is that what heaven is? Should we expect this kind of cosmic roast beef line and, and, and flipped order? Is that what we're looking forward to? Um, I think not exactly. And, and yet there are these passages in the Bible. Um, we, we kind of refer to them as a whole as the, the great reversal passages, Right? And it shows up in sayings like Jesus, the first shall be last, the last shall be first, or the, the least among you shall be the greatest. We're kind of familiar with these sayings. And, and it shows up as we work our way through James. James says the, the lowly should exalt in his exaltation, and the rich should exalt in his humiliation. And, and I think 
These verses are often thrown around in this kind of frivolous way. Um, I hope this morning, as we take a bit of a deeper look, we'll, we'll find the, the depth here and the practical, real-life application for this. Um, so um, that's where we're going to be this morning. Flip open with me, if you would, to James chapter 1. Um, we want you to have God's Word open in front of you. Um, was talking uh, this week, doing some training with some leaders in the church, and just kind of relaying that foundation. It's good for me to go through that. And uh, being reminded, um, this is God's church. Um, the senior pastor, the head shepherd of this church is Christ, not me. Uh, and so our goal as we gather is not that you would hear from me. I have no wisdom for you. Um, our goal together is to come to God's word and that his word sets the stage and that we uh, are, are seeking after him and, uh, and his truth. So uh, James chapter one, and uh, before we read it, would you join me in prayer? Father, again, we confess this is your church. You are God. Christ is our shepherd. He is the head of the church. And Lord, we just want to hear from you this morning. So Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to see your truth. Pray that you would soften our hearts as we wrestle with some difficult truths this morning. God, I pray that, um, that, you, would, that you would speak through your word and use me as a tool this morning. And God, that if, um, if I have anything to say that is, that is out of step with your word, Father, that those words would fall to the ground, that they would not be heard. Um, but God, that your truth would go forward this morning uh, and that by your grace, by your spirit, you'd be at work in our hearts, Father, that you would be strengthening, encouraging, convicting, um, build us up as your church, we pray in Jesus' name. So James chapter 1, we're working our way through verse by verse, and uh, this morning uh, we come to verses 9 through 12. So let me read these for us as we begin. Let us, the lowly brother, boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So the first thing we see here in this, this passage is this, this great reversal. This upending of the, of the worldly system and the way we see it. Verse 9, the, the lowly brother should boast in his exaltation. And, and then verse 10, the rich should boast in his humiliation. And it seems to me that this is one of those statements, you, you know, you throw it out there and, uh, and we just kind of know, oh, there's wisdom there. We just kind of feel it. And, uh, and so we're tempted, I think, um, to just nod our heads and go, yeah, that seems right without understanding what it actually means. Uh, and, and so we need to push a little harder. Um, God's word is not given to us as kind of a collection of feel-good statements to just kind of give us warm fuzzies. Um, it's for us to obey. It's for us to, to live in. And sometimes we need to push a little harder to get at the, the truth beneath. And so what does this mean? Well, first off, we have this lowly brother. Now, he's a brother. He's a Christian. He's a follower of Christ. This is not true of humanity in general. Um, this is true of believers. And the, the lowly brother, word lowly there, um, can mean poor, and, and it's contrasted in, in verse 10 against the rich man. So obviously I think 
material uh, wealth is, is somewhat in view here, the homeless, the poor, um, but it's broader than that. It means someone of, of little significance, someone who is oppressed, someone who's not impressive. This is someone that's not uh, kind of a social outsider, a cultural misfit, the person who doesn't, isn't cool, um, out of place, and, and is weak and powerless, of, of little influence. Nobody cares about that person. Um, in, in James's day, I think as we go further, we'll see this very much applies to the, the orphan, the widow. Um, they had no voice. They had no significance in society. Uh, some of you hear that and you think, yeah, that's me. I'm a little person. Uh, I go unnoticed. I'm a wallflower. Uh, I don't fit in. People don't tend to notice me or listen when I speak. And, and here's what, what you're commanded. We're commanded boast in your exaltation. Uh, brag about your high position. What does that mean? Um, typically, boasting is a bad thing, right? We're not supposed to brag and boast, but here it's commanded. Um, but notice what we are to boast in. The, the lowly is to boast in their exaltation. And, and James doesn't really fill that in. He kind of lets that paradox hang out there. But, but in the context of Scripture... And, and the word there, exaltation, and it gives us some hints. It's a word that's often used of heaven and the, the heavenly realm. He, he's, he's pointing us to our uh, eternal position. He's pointing us to a position, a, a status that we have in Christ that is, that is above, that's, that's over anything this world has to offer. Right? And so the most lowly, the most insignificant, oppressed, and cast-aside person in this world who is, who is a believer in Christ who's given themselves to, to following him, uh, also has this exalted position, also has this high, high place. And so Romans 8, 16 and 17, um, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Think about that, children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Um, an heir is someone who inherits what the... If someone passes away, their heir inherits everything that they owned. Um, now, God's not going to die. That's not what he's saying. But, but, but we are heirs in his house. We have that position of importance, of, of, of a certain amount of entitlement to what God has. Ephesians 2, 6 and 7. God raised us up with him. That's with Christ. Listen, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show us the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's a high position. Seated at the right hand of God in Christ Jesus. That's us. Every Christian, no matter how small or insignificant in this world, um, simultaneously has that exalted place in heaven. In God's eyes, they're seated with Christ on high. In eternity, they will be the, the recipients of his immeasurable riches poured out in Christ. That's exalted. That's huge. Now, hear the command. If you're one of those who said, yeah, that's me, insignificant, small, poor, lowly, not influential, James is saying, don't let that be your identity. Right? Don't, don't live there. This is so dangerous. In, in our world, more than ever, um, I, we actually tend to, to elevate those who have a victim status, right? 
If you can say, oh, I've been hurt or I've been marginalized or I'm part of this group that's pressed out to the side and, and oppressed, then you get a certain voice, a certain amount of, of power. And, and we even do this in our own hearts, right? We, we console ourselves with the fact that no one understands me. I'm all on my own. Nobody gets me. Everybody looks past me. And, and, and we actually, in this backwards kind of way, say, I'm special because of how not special I am. And we hold on to that and we kind of cherish that. That's who I am. And James is saying, no, no, you're not. You need to repent of that. You need to put that idea away. That's not who you are. In Christ, um, you have this high and lofty position. No, no one should pity you. You shouldn't pity yourself. That's not who you are anymore. You have been seated at the right hand of God in Christ. You've, you've been noticed and understood by God himself. You've been elevated the status of saint. You've been adopted as a, as a child of God, a brother of Christ. And, and you have an eternity ahead of you of living in, in glory. No one should feel bad for you. You shouldn't feel bad for yourself. Don't, don't boast about and live in your earthly insignificance. Boast in and, and live in the fact that you have this exalted eternal position. And of course, that boasting is acceptable because it's not a boasting in me. That's a, that's a boasting in Christ. Look what he has done. Outside from anything I deserve, he has given me this. Now, on the other hand, this, the second part of this great reversal, the rich is to boast in his humiliation. And so the, the lowly is to boast in his exaltation and the rich is to boast in his humiliation. Well, there's some debate here whether this rich man is a brother or not. Um, if he's a, a brother in contrast, so it's a kind of rich brother versus poor brother, um, or if it's the poor brother versus a rich unbeliever. Um, if that's the case, then the, the idea of his, um, his humiliation is looking forward to judgment. It's God's uh, righteous judgment against sinners. And then the, the, the idea of boasting in his humiliation is kind of like a biting irony there. And so that's how some people take this passage. I, I don't think that's the right way to read it as I look at it and wrestle with the way that it's laid out. Um, I think this is looking at two believers. I think this is the lowly brother boasting in his exaltation and the rich brother boasting in his humiliation. Um, but I just want to be transparent. Not everyone agrees on that reading. Um, but assuming this is a brother, here's the logic. Here's what James is, is saying. Um, this is speaking, obviously, to the people on the other end of the spectrum, right? You're not lowly. You're rich. You, you have the things that others desire. You have a, a nice house. You have a, a nice car. Um, you wear nice clothes. You, you probably go on nice vacations. The, the implication is you have influence. People tend to notice when you walk into a room, to, to listen when you speak. And, and maybe you hear this and you think right away, okay, oh my God, I would admit that's me. Uh, but I would say I think there's a danger in this category that, that many who are in it don't recognize it. We take it for granted. Um, you're used to being seen and heard. You're used to fitting in and to be, being respected. You're used to having a certain amount of influence when you speak. And so you don't see that as significant. You don't notice it. Um, don't be too quick to count yourself out of this category. Um, and in fact, I think in both categories, we just kind of need to search our hearts and see to what degree do I have to deal with this. But to those who are rich, they're to boast in their humiliation 
What does that mean? Well, just like the one who was poor and lowly in the eyes of the world, uh, wasn't to live in that as their identity, wasn't to, to hold on to that. And so those who are rich and exalted in this world in the same way, um, don't let that be your identity. Don't let that be who you are. Don't fall into this trap of believing that, that this is real significance. I matter. I'm important because of these earthly things, because of my position and my, and my wealth and my influence. Don't think you're someone special because of that. First of all, um, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4 um, that no one should be puffed up against another. And, and he goes on to say why. Uh, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Um, it was a gift. It was given to you by God. And you say, no, it wasn't. I started from nothing and I worked my way up and I earned every dollar I ever made. Okay, and who gave you the health to work? Who gave you that mind with ambition and understanding? Um, those were gifts. Everything you have is a gift from God. And, and so um, we ought not to boast about those things as if they're ours. Um, your life and breath and personality and all of that uh, was a gift from God. So don't boast about it like it's something you did. Instead, um, the rich are to boast in their humiliation. Humiliation of living for Christ, living radically for Him. Uh, you may enjoy that feeling of being respected by the world, of, of walking into the office and people take note of driving by in a nice car and it, and it turns some heads and, and having people kind of wish they were you. But what happens when we begin to speak of Christ? What happens when you uh, talk of your sinful nature and need for a Savior? What happens when you, uh, when you uh, take that wealth that you've accumulated and, and rather than a, a bigger house and a nicer car, you begin to mobilize it for the kingdom of God? What happens when we begin to talk about the sin of this world and, and God, what God says about it in Scripture? What happens when you, like some in this very congregation, have done turn down or walk away from a perfectly good job because you refuse to cut some corners and shade the truth? 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. It's foolishness. They're going to look at you and say, I thought you were wise. I thought you were influential. You've made this great company or you, you, know, you seem to have everything all together. And here you are talking about this nonsense of Jesus. You look like a fool, and, and you're humiliated in that. Jesus was hated. He was cast out and despised. He was, he was put down and eventually crucified and mocked ruthlessly by the rich, by the influential of his day. Philippians 2 tells us it was Jesus who, though he was in the very form of God, exalted far beyond, in the very form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He who was the most exalted became the most humiliated. That's Jesus. That's who we're called to, to follow, the Son of God who was crucified. What does it look like to follow him? Well, there's numerous great examples. Paul is an obvious one. He was at the top of his game. 
Uh, He was progressing in Judaism far beyond even his teachers. He was a young man and was killing it. He was heading for the top. When he entered into a town, um, people would meet him at the gate. There would be a young man there ready to, to wash his feet. The moment he walked in the door, people were eager to serve him, to learn from him. Uh, And he began to follow Christ. And it's not long before he's being lowered out the window of the wall in a basket um, to escape and and go hide by night for the sake of his life. And and he was often um, in prison. He was stoned and left for dead. Um, He was an outsider. He was outcast for the sake of Christ. That's the, the humiliation that we ought to expect in following Christ. Will you take up your cross and follow him into your own humiliation? Will you accept being mocked and and cast aside and called a fool for the sake of Christ? Will you use your your exalted position not to to separate yourselves from those lowly people? I don't have to deal with them anymore. I have a a better social sphere I can deal in. Or will you follow Christ and, and use that position to serve the lowly? Use that position in in humility. The rich and influential are not to expect uh, or accept their humiliation for the sake of Christ. They're to boast in it, be excited about it, find joy there. You may have the influence and charisma and wealth in this world, but that's not who you are. That's not what defines you. That's not what really matters. You're a servant of Christ, a slave actually, of Christ would be a better rendering of that term through the uh, New Testament. Exalt in your humiliation for him. And so we see this, this great reversal at work. The lowly are exalted, the elevated are humbled, and, and we stand together at the foot of the cross on, on level ground. That's, that's the meaning of Galatians 3, 26, 28. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is therefore neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Those were all categories of, of, of power and influence versus insignificance. And, and Paul's saying they're wiped out. That doesn't matter anymore. We're, we're one in Christ. There is no such thing as the, the, the influence of the wealthy man in the church because we're one. We come together in Christ. The lowly brought up, the exalted brought down. Um, And and so we have this great reversal. And then James lays out for us the good reason. Kids, if you want to really impress me with your notes, there you go. The great reversal and the good reason. What is the good reason? This isn't crazy talk. Um, This this is not, as it might first appear, insanity, right? I mean, who who would listen to this and say, I've I've worked so hard to get myself in this great position, and, and you want me to throw that away? Well, I think it makes sense if we look at the rest of the passage, uh, picking up at um, the end of verse 10, end of verse 11. So James says the the rich should boast in his humiliation uh, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass and the flowers fall and its beauty perishes. So it will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Boy, that's a, that'd be a nice picture, wouldn't it? The sun beating down on the little flowers and drying them up. Like this delicate wildflower, 
right? In, in the Middle Eastern sun, the, the wealth, the power in this world, it's temporary. It's so fragile and frail, it's, it's passing. It's, it's there one day and it's gone the next. Like a man waking up from a dream, he, he'll be in the middle of, of attaining success and, and luxury and all these things and suddenly awake to find his hands filled with nothing but air and blankets. Jesus tells a parable along these lines. Luke 12, Jesus said to them, take care, be on your guard against all covetousness. Covetousness is desiring the, the things of this world. Take care against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do, for I have nowhere to store all my crops. And he said, I will do this, I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years, relax Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. We spend so much time building up wealth here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to retire. I'm going to make it rich and just, just travel and enjoy this world. And we're looking forward, and, and God says, Hold on a second. This life is short. It's going to disappear. And then what will that matter? Then what will that mean? It's so easy to think of both of these passages as, as condemnations against the rich. And, uh, and I think that speaks to the lowly just as much. The rich man has influence and, and wealth. And, and he's tempted to, to put his identity in what he has. He's, and he's found his joy in the things of this world. Whereas the lowly lacks that influence and wealth, and they're tempted to define themselves by not having it, to assume that their lack of joy and their lack of, of happiness is due to their lack of worldly things, and, and both of them have this elevated view of worldly things. And, and James says, it's fragile. It's like a wildflower in the heat of the sun. This life, the things of this world, um, it's so short. So incredibly temporary, it's hard to even imagine. I, I remember uh, years ago, this stuck with me for whatever reason, the youth pastor saying, um, just picture a line going out as, as far as you can picture in that direction, and millions upon millions of miles off this way, out, out into space and beyond, and, and coming right through here and heading off in this direction as far as you can imagine. And, and, and this right here is like our kind of view of eternity. We just see this little glimpse of it. Uh, and then he took a tack and he, and he bent over and he, and he scratched the concrete in front of him. And so that's your life. Like this, like what, 80, 90 years at best that you get, that's it. It's just a little scratch on this line of eternity. And we spend so much time and effort focusing on this little scratch of a life instead of seeing the scope of eternity. Like, that's insanity. That's what doesn't make sense. Um, Charles Spurgeon puts it so plainly. Uh, he says, time is short, eternity is long. It is only reasonable that this short life be lived in light of eternity. That's, that's the reason. That's a good reason for this, this great reversal. For the lowly to rejoice in their exaltation and the exalted to rejoice in their humiliation because, because this life is tiny, it's so short, it's so small, and eternity is large. 
So don't freak out over what you don't have. Don't get all wrapped up in, in what you do have. All of this is just contained in that little scratch of a life. Step back. Consider eternity. And those who focus on this life only, those whose hearts are all wrapped up in the things here, they may succeed greatly in that. They may get all the things that they're after, but so what? What does it matter? Matthew 16, 26 Jesus says, what would it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Hold these things in the world so loosely. Let your, let your roots be, be shallow here. Um, don't let your heart get, get caught up in the pursuit of comfort, the pursuit of possessions, the pursuit of the things in this world, and, and the, the desire to be important or accepted or, or whatever it is. These things are temporary. So in stark contrast to that, we see the, the final part of this passage. Um, we, we had the, the, this great reversal and then the good reason, and now we have a glorious reward. That's at the end of this, the glorious reward. That's verse 12. Uh, most Bibles put this down into the, second, the next paragraph, and I mean, obviously, this all flows together, um, but I, I want to pull that back up. I think it connects most uh, pertinently to verses 10 and 11. James says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Now, to this point, I haven't stopped and connected these verses to the last few verses and, and kind of where we've come so far through verses 1 to 8. Um, but this fits right in. This is, this is the flow of his logic. It makes so much sense. He, he began um, saying, blessed is, sorry, he began saying, count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of many kinds. Those trials produce steadfastness, right? And, and now he's saying, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. It's the same thing. It's like a, it's like a bookend to this little, this little section. Count it all joy, that's blessedness. Trials of various kinds, well, these are the trials, these two scenarios, the, the lowly who is tempted toward despair and the rich who is tempted toward pride and, and focusing on the things of this world. Um, these are the trials that are put before us. And, and wisdom is living in light of eternity. Wisdom is seeing this great reversal at work and, and living in that reality. So whether rich or poor, we all face uh, this trial of how, how much do we value this world? How much are we focused on the, the temporary here rather than eternity? And we need to see this bigger picture. We need to live our lives in, in light of reality as it really is, even finding joy in this trial. And those who live this way, those who, who, who give evidence of an authentic faith through these trials. That's what we've been talking about. They will be blessed. There's this glorious reward. And so James says, for the, when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. And, and so we've been looking at this idea of authentic faith and, and understanding there's, there, there are things that pass as faith, things that, that look like faith from the outside, but under the test, under the pressure, they prove to be false. James is still on that same train. And he says those who passed the test, those who stood the test will receive the crown of life. I think the meaning here is the crown is life. The crown, the, the reward is eternal life. He's saying set your hope on that. Let, your, let that be your identity, the crown of life. 
But I want us to see the, the language that James uses here, and I think it's helpful for us to, to learn from this. Um, again, James is talking about this, this testing of faith and, and the underlying assumption that, that there are those who claim the name of Christ, and I think we've all seen this, um, but they're not truly saved. Not, not all of them have an authentic faith. And we looked at the parable of the sower from, from Jesus in Matthew 13. He goes out and he's, he's, he casts the seed broadly, and this is the gospel going out, and it falls uh, all over the place. And someone falls in the path, people hear it, and they just discard it, not interested, doesn't matter. Um, but there are others um, who receive it, and, and they sprout up. They give evidence. It looks like faith. They, they sprout with joy, and, and yet when trials come, they show that they didn't truly have root, that the, the gospel had never actually fully transformed them. It was just surface, and they fall away. They show that their faith was not authentic. And so how do we know? How do we know with confidence if this person or that person or I myself or am truly, genuinely saved? And, and, and boy, it would be so nice to just have a little, like, mark we could check. Um, it would be so nice to just have something you just like, there we go, check three boxes, I'm good, I'm done. Um, I don't think that's the case. I don't think Scripture gives us that. Now, it's become popular to use the phrase, once saved, always saved, and, and I know uh, now we get uncomfortable. <laughs> well, you're going to talk about that? Um, yeah, we're going to go there. Um, I don't know where that came from. Uh, I don't know who started it. And I, and I don't disagree with its meaning. I don't disagree with what, what, what most people mean when they say that, but, but I, I, I disagree with the way it's so often applied and, and misunderstood. And, and so we use this phrase, or, or we understand salvation to be, well, as long as you did this little ritual, right? As long as you jumped through this hoop, as long as you said this little prayer, as long as you asked Jesus into your heart, as long as you gave your life to him or made the decision to follow Jesus, um, that if, that if that outward visible thing happened, then that person is absolutely saved, no question, never come back to it, never revisit that, they're saved, they'll be in heaven, full stop. I don't think we find that understanding in Scripture. I don't think it's there. I don't think Jesus teaches it. I don't think James teaches it. It's not some human thing that we do. It's not a little phrase that we say. We're talking about a miracle here. We're talking about a miracle of, of regeneration that, that God does in the heart of man um, that is far beyond anything we could do. Just look at a few passages with me. Uh, John 3. Nicodemus comes to Jesus and, and, and he's asking about salvation. He's asking about the kingdom of God. How do I, how do I get in? You're, you must be a true teacher. I want to be part of this. And John 3, 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus, here's how to enter the kingdom of God. Here's what you need. And he doesn't say, make this decision. He doesn't say, repeat after me. He says this, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He puts a barrier up to Nicodemus. He tells him, you're lacking something. You need to be born again. You need a new you, a new creation. Verse 4, Nicodemus pushes back at Jesus, and some people kind of make fun of Nicodemus. Like, he's so dense. He's not dense. He is an elevated teacher in Israel. He understands metaphor. He understands what Jesus is doing here. And he responds to Jesus within this metaphor, the new birth. And he says, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? He's saying, Jesus, new birth is a, that's a strange metaphor because that's not something I can do. 
I had nothing to do with my first birth as I came out from my mother. How do I, how do I get a second birth? How do I get born again? And Jesus says, I know. Verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. Humans have the ability to give birth to human things. Flesh gives birth to flesh. But that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Only the Holy Spirit can give birth to a new heart. Only the Holy Spirit brings about that miracle of regeneration in the human heart. So he doesn't tell Nicodemus, repeat this prayer. He tells him, you need to be born again. You need to be created new by God himself. You need a miracle in your heart. And, and, and this is exactly what God promised back in Ezekiel 36, 26. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Nicodemus, you have a heart of stone. It's cold. It's dead. It's not responsive. You need a new heart. Ephesians 2, Paul picks up on this same thing. Verse 1, he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. He didn't say sick. He didn't say crippled. Dead, lifeless, unresponsive. And then he goes on to say, but God, because of his great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. It is by grace you have been saved. God did it. And therefore, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Hold the old has passed away, the new has come. And so it's not a, again, it's not a question of did you say these words, did you feel this feeling, did you, did you really, really, really mean it? The question is, were you created new in Christ Jesus? Were you given a new birth? Were you brought from spiritual death to spiritual life? Did this transformation happen as a miracle of God in your heart? And that, that process is significant. That's a, that's a miracle that we can't produce. And so there's nothing wrong with, with praying a prayer of repentance. That's a great thing to do. But, but you have to understand um, a, a prayer of repentance and faith doesn't come from a dead soul. It doesn't come from a stone heart. Faith is the evidence that God has been at work. It's the response so 1 John 5, 1, John says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Get the order there? Everyone who believes, they believe because they have been born of God. At the same time, um, that simple ability to repeat words, right? To say, I believe, is not necessary evidence of transformation. All kinds of people say they believe and and there's no other evidence. There's no other fruit. And, and so moving back to our primary question, how do we know? How do you get down to the root of this authentic faith? How do we figure that out? How do we know that this, this miracle has actually happened in someone's heart? Or is it just kind of a human activity? Is it just a, uh, a shadow of what should be? And the answer is all those who've been saved, truly saved, brought from death to life, Christ will bring them ultimately home. And notice, um, not just based on what they said one time, not just a past event that happened once, but rather it's an ongoing, continuing work of Christ. So Philippians 1.6 talks about our, our salvation in this, this ongoing way. 
I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. That's what Paul says. I'm, I'm confident that God who started that work will continue that work and he'll finish it when Christ returns. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, make you holy, work in you to bring you along to holiness. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen to this. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He will work in you to bring you along, to keep you in him until he comes. He's faithful. He will do it. And so rather than uh, once saved, always saved, I far prefer the language of the perseverance of the saints. Because it gets to that truth. It gets to this understanding that, that, it, that it's not just that I said something once and I'm now always saved. It's that if God began a good work in me, I'm going to persevere. He will keep that growth. And, and yes, there'll be ups and downs and there'll be trials and that battle with sin is always there. And it's, and it's two steps forward and one step back and it's ugly and messy, but he will continue on in that work of transformation. Um, not because of anything in me, but because he is faithful. Because he is able, as, as Jude says, the last uh, verse in Jude. Jude 24, second last, sorry. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. He's able, he can do it, he can work in his saints to keep them in him. And they will persevere. Now, again, that, that, that's not, it's not a smooth process. And so you see someone backslide and fall into sin and say, oh, they were clearly never saved. No. Let's wait and see. God disciplines his children. He'll, he'll bring them back. And, and sometimes people even will die in that state of rebellion against God. And we're left saying, I don't know. I don't know if he was a, a true believer who had just fallen into sin or if this was evidence that he never was a believer. That's not our place. But those who truly belong to Christ um, will pass that test ultimately of endurance to the end. Um, not because of their own strength, but because Christ is faithful. That's what James is saying here. Blessed is the one who remains steadfast under trials, who keeps on following Christ. Because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. That, that's the ultimate test. It's the endurance to the end, and, and that's how the, the authentic faith is ultimately proven. It survives. It continues to walk in obedience. It continues to, to seek after Christ, and, and, and James says it here. Jesus said it um, first in Matthew 24, 11. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. There are many who will follow false teaching and be led away from Christ, and because of lawlessness will be, sorry, because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Wicked and evil will continue to grow, and there are some whose love for Christ will grow cold and they'll walk away. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And he repeats this again to each of the seven churches in the, the book of Revelation. He begins with these seven letters from Jesus to the church, and each of them hits this. Uh, 2 verse 7 to the church in Ephesus. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. 2.11 of the church in Smyrna, the one who conquers uh, will not be hurt by the second death. 
2.17, the church in Pergamum, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name on it. That's, that's heaven imagery. Heaven is for those who conquer, those who overcome, those who continue on in perseverance, who pass the test. And so he goes on uh, to each of these seven churches. He says it seven times. And, and notice back in James what that endurance, what does that steadfastness look like? What does that authentic faith look like? It's love for him. It's love for God. James says, for when he has stood the test, he received the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. It's those whose hearts are not captivated by this world, those who aren't so wrapped up in this little life here that they've missed the glory of God and love for him. Do you love him? Do you treasure him above everything else? Is the, the foundation of your identity and your joy looking not to this life, but to that crown of eternal life, to life with him? There's the test. How am I doing? Do I put my identity and my, my significance here in now or in him? John 2, 15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. For that one, there's a glorious reward. The promise of the crown of life, eternal life, true life. It is not, it's not broken and muddied like this life here. It's not twisted by sin and filled with suffering and hardship and all kinds of pain. But life abundant, eternity of joy in the presence of God. Life without death or suffering or sorrow. Life without need or lack, without worry or concern or loneliness. Life of abundance, of complete fullness. This world looms so large in our perspective. It fills our eyes. It's right in front of us. It's happening right now. And we so easily get caught up in it. We so easily find ourselves rejoicing too much in the things of this world and, and being brought too much to despair when the, when the world withholds. But, but this life is so short. And true life is found in Christ. So let us fix our eyes on him. As Hebrews says, the author and perfect of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. So that's what we want to do this morning uh, as we celebrate communion together. Just take a few moments to, to contemplate Christ, to set our hearts on him, to, to make <laughs> test our own hearts. Is he my treasure? And maybe you need to stop and spend some time considering the exaltation that you have in Christ and, and, and put aside some of these things that have been causing you too much despair when you are exalted in Christ. Or, or maybe it's the other side. I need to start pulling my heart free. I got too caught up in these things that I have or trying to get them or seeking after them. Um, and maybe it's a mix of both. But we have to come to see and to know and to love him, to treasure him uh, above all else. So um, the worship team's going to come. Um, they're going to play for us. And, and I just want to...